I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. We're here. We're not that important. We're only important in that we have love to give to people. That's how important you are. The more love you have, the more you have in the world around you, the bigger you are. And so if you can understand that concept, and not everybody can, but when you find the people who want to join your team and who love that concept, it took us a long time to get there, but it's almost a machine. You just plug in, sit down, and get to work. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. I feel like we have such a clear vision for what our lives and our businesses will look like before we open. And then the flood comes and we're so busy trying to survive that we forget to thrive. We forget why we got into this to begin with. And that why for most of us was love. Love of community, love of food, and love of revelry. Meet Mark Bitterman, a man who's never forgotten his why. And no surprise, it served him well. Today we chat about finding your true north, holding on to it, and building a business that's built to last. I think salt was a very gradual thing. In all honesty, I didn't know that I was even interested in it, particularly when I was interested in it. It was just one more interest. And I kind of tell the story in this first book that I wrote. But basically what happened, I was, I'd been living in the south of France, restoring a chateau. I found myself this amazing gig down there. And I'm just laying parquet floors and building stone walls and restoring several hundred gigantic ancient oak shutters. And I was on a motorcycle back then. I was motorcycling around, taking a little trip up north stopped in a truck stop, ordered a steak, and cheap truck stop steak. (laughs) And (laughs) I take a couple bites, and a minute or two into this, I'm having an out-of-body experience of some sort. I did not know what was going on. And I look at the steak. There's nothing that's revealing it to me. And the waiter, I ask him, and he's like, well, dude, I can't help you. It's a steak. But he's saying that in French, you know, and then... (laughs) I persist. I'm like, dude, you got to tell me what's going on with this thing. And he says, well, it's a steak. Uh, It's been grilled and it's got salt on it. And I look at this more carefully and these beautiful kind of opalescent silvery crystals of salt studying the surface of the steak. And it's in this wells of moisture. And I'm just like, take another bite. And I realized that there's like these minerals just ping-ponging around in my mouth. And there's this incredibly dynamic thing happening. And it was this epiphany that I had that that salt was a thing. It wasn't an industrial substance, a word, a white thing. It was actually something that had some sort of personality and identity to it, I guess. So I jumped on my motorcycle and I raced to the coast of France. I, they knew the salt maker, by the way. So I asked them and he like in, gave me an intro and I raced to the coast just south of Brittany and met this guy who's making salt and he's got 
this long blonde wavy hair and he's staring out over the sea talking about how he makes salt with his hands and the sea and the sun and his hair is blowing magically in the wind and there's not even any wind it's just this <laughs> guy and i was like oh my god and he tells a story about the salt farm that has been made on this farm has been made in the same way continuously since the 12th century when monks first established the salt works and that salt works was established on the foundation of a roman era salt works built in 800 AD and that salt works was founded on the foundations of a neolithic era salt works that goes back to the dawn of time and i'm thinking i'm eating the steak and i'm telescoping through time and space back through the most ancient traditions and i'm connecting with this man who's working in an artisanal fashion it's a very long sentence i just gave you but the thing that really 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 stuck with me also is that that salt making process is the oldest continuously operated economic enterprise on earth there's oh my nothing God. else that's been made the same way to the same traditions the same economic networks and i was just blown away by that for years afterwards i would just kind of opportunistically grab a salt or if i was traveling someplace i would go check out salt works it was not a geek thing at all i was just kind of like one more thing to do if i was in rome i'd look for caravaggio paintings if i was on the coast of Croatia, I'd look for a salt works. And 20 years later, I discovered that I had amassed kind of a bizarre collection of salt and things came together. <laughs> well, and they did in a really interesting way because the we'll, we'll say you were an enthusiast, right? Who eventually probably became an expert, but then you evolved and you became an advocate, an evangelist for salt. Which is really interesting because it's not just about a professional enterprise. It's sharing what you love with the masses. And I'm sure that before doing that, had you taken a poll and asked a million people, do you give a shit about salt? I think the overwhelming response would have been, no, thank you. I'm busy. And yet still, you found a tribe and you had the courage to start that conversation. Talk to me about that. Yeah, courage is a generous word. I actually think that I was, in a certain way, rather uncourageous. What I was thinking back to as you describe this is you're absolutely right. You couldn't even ask the question, are you interested in salt? Because people would just say, <laughs> what is salt? Salt is salt. There is no question about right. salt. It's not even a topic. And that was really, a, it was a given. And I did find that to be infuriating. I've always loved this quote. People say there's a myth that entrepreneurs start businesses because of something that they love. And I think the more accurate is that they start a business because there's something that they hate and mm -hmm. they have to fix it. Yeah. But I really was kind of an unwilling participant in this whole thing. I put my salt on the shelves and I was telling stories about salt, but the whole time, and I found that I enjoyed it. I didn't really know that I liked this kind of public forum of just standing in front of a little wall of jars of salt and telling people stories about all the different why it's unique and how it's fun, really how there's just a miracle inside of every crystal of salt. So I was doing that, but I was genuinely quite bashful about it because I felt that it was inauthentic for me to then sell them the salt. I was like, I just wanted to tell them about salt. I'm just a guy. I'm not a merchant. I'm not whatever the heck. I'm not 
trying to monetize this conversation. I just want to tell you about something that I love. And it took me a long time to kind of overcome that and to recognize that when people were responding by buying something, it was a reflection. It was their way of participating in this. Oh, I love what you've just said. Let me give you a few dollars and take this stuff home. And so it's not so much I had the courage to evangelize. I just kind of realized that evangelizing was something that gave me joy that I could measure in the effectiveness of it by people's responses. Something that you bring up that I think is a beautiful parallel to the restaurant industry or terrible one, depending on how you want to look at it, (laughs) is the shame around money, is the shame Mm. around profit. When you work to serve, when you have a servant's heart, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with coaching clients or with successful restaurateurs. Like, you know, I don't really want to say that because I don't want people to think that I do too well. And I mean, what a terrible dynamic. And I don't think that that is a perspective that the world has forced on us. I think it's self-imposed, is it not? I think that's a really, really amazing thought and question. One of the things that we talk about that I talk about, I gave you the first example of measuring how effectively I had communicated the miracle of something, the beauty of something to somebody was in their purchase. I knew it because they put dollars in my pocket. People don't do that willingly. They actually really don't want to give you money. But if you give them no choice because they're filled with excitement and joy and can't wait to go home and cook something, then they'll give you money. And over the years, I have sort of a mantra around in our management, which is that just because we can measure something with dollars doesn't mean that's a bad measurement. <laughs> Love that. And we are, we're rightfully, I think that a lot of us were really tuned into something, to authenticity. Do we believe in something? If we believe in it, then what's the dollar have to do with it? This is something that transcends the transactional, the financial the capitalistic worldview. That said, dollars are this kind of beautifully frangible thing. And you can convert love of salt, you can convert hunger for a bagel, you can convert excellent customer service, you can convert all these different things into dollars or some sort of exchange like that. And I think that that's kind of a miracle. And the question is, If that's the end goal, going back to kind of something you and I spoke about earlier, if the dollars are what you're aiming for, then you're behind the eight ball because people don't want to give you those dollars. So if you're thinking about them, you're not going to get them. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, let's talk about that because it was something that came up before we hit record. And it's building things that you know you would love, right? That your avatar is you. You know, I've said it on the show many times. My secret weapon, the reason that I have been so successful professionally is because I am incredibly average. What I like, <laughs> most people like, truly. <laughs> I don't like weird shit. I am super vanilla when I built this show. I talked to the people I wanted to talk to and I asked the questions that I want to ask and I let other people listen in. When I built the restaurants, It was because that was the cuisine I was seeking and the method in which I wanted to receive it. Every time in my professional life that I tried to do something for someone else, I failed because I don't have an intimate understanding of who they are. And to pivot the conversation into meadow, I mean, 
that is definitely not a store for everyone. And you're thriving. I like to brag. It's an absolutely terrible business idea. (laughs) We sell salt, chocolate, bitters, and flowers. Right. And in 2006, when we opened, there was no such thing as salt as a product category. Chocolate was candied sweets that you buy at a shopping mall or at a chain drugstore. And bitters, who knew what that was? I mean, no about a handful of our tenders in the world, mm-hmm. maybe. And fresh cut flowers, which strangely in America, we don't, I mean, more and more, thank God that's come to the fore. But long story short, we specialize in things that people didn't know they wanted. And when they did want it, they only wanted a little bit once in a while. It's a, just a, I mean, please, if anybody is listening to this show, please go out and try. I'd love to have some competition in this field because we could use more of them, but it's the difficult way to go about things. On the flip side, there are things that are a thrill to reveal to people. People walk in the doors of our shops, which are very experiential. They're all built out of old growth Douglas fir and all handmade. I made them myself. And on purpose, we do things the slow way a lot of times because it reveals something about, about our love for what we're doing to our customers, even if they only just feel it somewhere when they walk in. And and the look of kind of just, it can depend on the person, but they can be dazzled, they can be thrilled, they can be annoyed, they can be all kinds of things, but there's rarely no reaction when you walk into one of our shops. And then we get to guide people. We get to spend time with them one-on-one and share with them about these things that they inevitably are realizing, wow, there's something in this for me. And it's actually a magnificent, I like to talk about how the unapproachability of what we have is an invitation for us to approach our customers. And it's built into us that we have to serve. If we don't serve, there is no company. And you're teaching. Yeah, we teach. Which is massive. And People appreciate it in education. And I think that you're bringing people into a world that they didn't even know they loved. I want to talk about intention. So I read what you write. I actually, in doing research, I sent my wife a link to your website and she was like, we have to buy all his salt. I was like, he has like a hundred different salts. I don't know if we should buy (laughs) all of them, but it's, you've done a masterful job of sharing your intention. And in sharing your intention, you share your love. And those two things combined create a lot of value for what you do at first glance. When I described your interest to my wife, I did a very poor job and she was not interested. (laughs) But when she read your words, she entered your world. Talk to me about intention and how it relates to storytelling, which relates to your work. I think implicit in everything, it's kind of a philosophical thing. I guess one of my curses is that I tend to start from a sort of philosophical place and oftentimes even end up in the same philosophical place, which is where you lose a lot of people. <laughs> but I do think that there's room in our world to go back to basics, to go back to the things that really, really touch us deeply. And for me, one of those things that is ultra profound is this concept of belonging. I think we live in a world where we are increasingly fragmented or at risk of being fragmented and isolated. There's the whole kind of Marxist critique that capitalism kind of disenfranchises the worker from the product of their labor. We lose the connection 
the participation, the meaningful participation in our society in an overly capitalistic society. And so for me, I am always interested in kind of working, swimming against that current. And I feel like when we participate in a really beautiful meal, we're doing something that's very profound. That's cliche, I understand, but it's profound. And our engagement with the ingredients is profound. And I feel like when we're able to do this with, when we are able to introduce something that's so basic, like salt, into someone's life, this is something that, again, you can go buy it in the supermarket. It's Diamond Kosher brand. It's the brand that all you chefs love so much. It's $3. It's spat out of a factory someplace, and you get the job done. Or you could look for something that is made by hand in an intimate relationship with nature. It's patience demanding. It's slow. It costs more money. It has more individuality. And it brings something to your life, brings some character to your life. So for me, what I think about any one of the things that we sell in our shop is just about slowing down a little bit, taking a deep breath and looking at the basic fundamental parts of your life and just engaging with them really honestly. Today, tiny segue, we can clip this one. (laughs) Back in 2006, I found a chocolate bar that was made in 2002 a single origin chocolate bar from the Chihuahua River Valley, which is our small remote valley, our remote valley in Venezuela, where extraordinarily high quality cacao comes from. And this cacao was made into a bar by a French company, and I found it, and I bought all of it. I bought tens of thousands of bars because it was all getting old, and no one wanted it because it was old chocolate. And I stored a bunch of it. And yesterday, I opened a bar that I've been storing for 20 years and cracked it open and tasted it around. I tasted it with my, my coach at my gym. I tasted it with some random kind of paranoid-looking lady who had walked into the shop. <laughs> and I tasted it with a couple people on my staff. And just to give somebody a little square of something that has that kind of history behind it and say, just put it in your mouth and wait. For a minute, nothing's even going to happen while it melts. Just wait and let it do what it's going to do. And to give somebody that time, that moment to kind of interact at a molecular level with a bar made in 2003 from cacao beans harvested in 2002 from a remote river valley in northern Venezuela with some of the prized cacao on the planet. That's just kind of an amazing thing to me. That's incredible. It's so much fun. It is. It's crazy. (laughs) Seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're going to learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of this as much as possible. When the well is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. 
I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. Let's talk about culture and culture at scale. To hear you talk, I think everyone's going to Google you after this and be like, oh, I want to buy some salt. I want to get some of them bitters. You talk about it so eloquently, which is fine and convenient in a single unit location. And when you hit two, I mean, they were both in Oregon, so maybe we can keep this party going. And then you become bi-coastal and it's like, holy shit, how do I scale this culture when I am across the entire country? Do I tell someone, if you believe what I believe, then you should buy what I sell? How do you make that transition? Yeah. I love this thought. It's challenging, which brings me back to this whole thing about belonging. The other thing, the kind of binary star that I think informs everything we do, the star in that binary system is place. This is going to seem a little bit funny, but these shops that we build, I mentioned that I build them by hand and it's not easy. I went out and got old growth dug fir and old growth cedar for the shops in Portland. And milled it all down by hand and built all these shelves. And when we opened up a shop in New York, I went out to Amish country and I got old growth hemlock and old growth yellow pine, brought it all on a U-Haul at four o'clock in the morning into Manhattan, laid out planks in the sidewalk and in the basement and built the shop. It was brutal. We did the lettering of the shop in New York City and the other shops in 24 karat gold and lemon gold. It's beautiful. We Obsess, as you know, over the products that come into these shops and the stories that they tell and the people that they bring into our lives via the makers that made them. And so each of these shops becomes a, frankly, kind of a force of nature of its own. And it bears a lot of our culture. It's a testament to what we believe in. So when you work with us, there is a setting, there is a place that anchors you as a professional. When you stand in front of these shelves, you're not Joey, who loves salt, you're a person who's suddenly almost like it's like, what's that uh, TV Game of Thrones, and you're a librarian in this giant tower. And your job is to be kind of a custodian of all these things. And so that the place does a lot of the work for us. And we're unrelenting what we call this value in our shop in our training. I'll just go ahead and share this is uncompromisingly beautiful, but uncompromisingly beautiful for us is an aesthetic around the quality of the merchandise, the beauty with which it's arranged, the cleanliness and the narratives that our merchandising tells our story. So that's a foundation of it all. And then after that, we just have to talk about a culture of service. And if you do those two things together, then your employees start to understand that, look, we're here. We're not that important. We're only important in that we have love to give to people. That's how important you are. The more love you have, the more you have in the world around you, the bigger you are. And so if you can understand that concept and 
not everybody can, but when you find the people who want to join your team and who love that concept, it's kind of a machine almost. It took us a long time to get there, but it's almost a machine. You just plug in, sit down and get to work. The whole time you were talking, the word that came to mind was resentment. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) We build, swear to God, swear to God, and I'll tell you why. It's because we build things. I interviewed Adam Perry Lang like a year and a half ago. The dude smelted his own fucking steak knives, right? So you're eating with something that he literally created himself as restaurateurs. You've done it yourself in your retail shops. We work so hard to make things nice, to make things special. And then you open and it took someone five minutes longer than expected to get whatever it was that they wanted. And it's all for nothing. And so you spend a lot of time, at least me, while you're building these things, saying, are they really going to care? Are they really going to give a shit? When we transitioned a fine dining restaurant into a completely sustainable enterprise, culminating with going carbon neutral in 2020, we did it believing no one would give a fuck. We did it for us, right? And so the question is return on investment in doing these things (laughs) that are exceptionally hard, right? That you do for other people. At the end of the day, do you have to say, I really hope they like it, but even if they don't, it's just for me. I need to do this. This is my medium. Yeah. I think we're dancing around something that's kind of fascinating. I would ask one question, which is if... These hand-forged steak knives, which is an act of absolute lunacy, it's just a terrible idea. However, if that gets two employees to feel like, fuck, man, I'm working in a badass restaurant. I'm stoked to be here. And they, they just feel stoked. They don't do anything differently. Imagine the impact of that. It's a kernel of culture in this restaurant in this retailer. that And you can build off a kernel like that. And I think the churn and burn stuff, I mean, that's why people have a dull look in their eyes. You go to a restaurant or, or a retail shop that doesn't have anything that captures the employee's imagination, you're doomed. And I think customers, I'm always really happy with this thing. It's like, I really don't know what percentage of the world cares about salt or chocolate or bitters or flowers or a little retail shop. I just don't know. I just know there's enough of them that care for us to keep going. And so that gives me, for example, the courage to open another shop. It's like, wow, we did it. Now we have three shops in Portland, Oregon. This is a smallish city. And we have three shops. And I thought after one, we're done. But I was encouraged by Kim Malik, actually, who you had on earlier. And I did. he's like, you gotta come, you gotta come open up across the street from me. And I'm like, Kim's awfully smart. I'm not as smart (laughs) as she is. Okay, I'll do it. And of course, it was just fantastic. And so we do these things. And I think our hope is, frankly, is it fulfilling in itself, in and of itself to do? Was it rewarding? And secondarily, does it have something? ROI is not about, going back to what we talked about a moment ago, ROI is not all necessarily dollars in the bank. If I don't have to hire and fire, if I don't have to do as much training or as hard of training, if I don't have to worry about 
really asymmetrical, different kinds of things being said and felt within the community of our business, I can't tell you how valuable that is. So we, you know, we make a point of it. I mean, I literally, I've literally built these shops and the staff kind of know it. So when I walk in, I'm basically the plumber now, you know, I take photographs and fix things and I just do the low hanging fruit that's really not in anybody else's wheelhouse, but they know that they're living in this place, staying, working this place that has a sense of hominess, a sense of place to it. Steak knives are brilliant. I think that's the best dumb, brilliant idea I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) You talk about scaling, you talk about growth, you talk about being inspired to open another location. I don't like being the one to tell you this, but retail is dead. That is the conventional wisdom. That you're never going to compete with Amazon Prime. Whatever you sell, I can get for a better price and I can have it delivered to me in 24 hours. And people say the same thing about the restaurant industry, right? That the middle is probably going to get choked out. The shitty stuff will stay shitty, but get cheaper. And the really expensive stuff is only for the ultra wealthy. And yet you see people opening restaurants every single day. And I talk to a man like yourself. And you are thriving and growing. So if retail's not dead for you, why? I think it's misleading to think. I've always been worried about companies like Amazon, like anybody else. But more, much, much more worried about what we don't talk about quite as often, which is the other big box stores. The economic devastation that is wrought by a new Walmart is incalculable. The local hardware store closed. Five local closed stores shop. A couple of the local convenience stores closed. Local drugstore closes. All these local independently owned businesses, proudly owned and operated by independent individuals who have a standing in their community and in their family. They all get wiped out and they all become minimum wage workers for these big box stores. That's brutal. And that, I think... I understand that it's a model almost of oppression. If you can't stop them, you're going to just take over. You generate your own cheap labor by putting your neighboring businesses out of business. It's a fantastic business model. And it seems like the Borg, it's just not going to be stoppable. But I don't think life's ever quite that simple. And I think that one of the reasons why is that I think we slightly misunderstand how retail works. We think about retail as a transactional arena, right? When we're saying retail is dead, people are no longer going to want to drive across town, get a parking space, go into this little shop, pay way more money, take their stuff, go home, decide they don't like it, drive back across town, return. Who the hell would want to do that? So if it's that simple, I agree, it's dead. But it's not at all what retail is about. And frankly, what it is, the biggest misconception I think of all is that retail is actually not even the store where the retail is taking place. What small independent retailers do is they're part of a network. What they do is they buy from other independent makers. When is the last time you saw a small independent retailer that specialized in vast quantities of incredibly cheap shit made in China? (laughs) They don't do that. They find things that are made, things that are, have intention behind them, things that are reflections of that store's values or of their geography or of their relationships, and they bring those things into their store. 
And so what we're really talking about a retailer is a vast and frankly, unkillable network of innovation, of innovators, of people who want to make something, to do something with themselves. So we find chocolate makers that they're coming out of the woodwork. You can't stop people from wanting to make chocolate. It's too much of a miracle to make chocolate. Grind up some beans with some sugar, temper it, mold it, wrap it up, put it in your mouth and want to die. It's so freaking delicious. So people are going to make chocolate. But Walmart and Amazon are not going to be the place to help these people succeed. People like us are. So you have to kill them before you can kill me. And I don't think it's doable. It's whack-a-mole. There's too many people who are too excited to create handmade smocks, to do custom t-shirts, to do whatever, Oregon Coast canned mussels. Who the heck would have thought to do that at a small scale? So that's the role of the small retailers. We're not going to go away because we're going to always be part of this kind of bubbling up of enthusiasm in the marketplace. The service industry is filled with all of these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? Yeah, I feel like there is a dance that is being done between customers and servers. And I feel like there's a little bit of an identity thing going on with what does it mean to be a server? And I feel like maybe there is room for us to understand that service is an act of joy and giving. And whenever you're participating in acts of joy and giving, you're getting just as much as you give back. So I'm not sure if this is quite the direction you're looking to go, but I do feel like there has, I sometimes see a little bit of an opposition either between the employee, the company, or the employee and the customer. And I just reject that opposition. I think that we're actually the fabric of the same cloth. And the more we embrace that, the more connected we become. And I think that that just strengthens everything. I think it strengthens the, the, the financial performance of the restaurant. I think it strengthens the feeling of satisfaction that the servers get from their work. And I think that there's a lot of work to be done because we do continually get fed the story that we live in a capitalist society. And my job is to go to work and transact the service that I provide in exchange for maximal tips and wages and whatever, everything else. And it's understandable that people say that because that's what we're told all the time. That's what our economic system is all about. But I think that beneath the surface of our economic system is a cultural one or a social one. And we're just as much participants of that. And there's a lot of capital in that that we can build on. So I think it's just kind of maybe a continual effort to talk about how transactions aren't really all about money. They're not all money transactions. And why? That's Mark Bitterman. For more information on The Meadow, visit themeadow.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. 
A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.